TED Audio Collective. Manujin Jen, this is Dr. Ernie in Silicon Valley. I have to confess, I was a little skeptical. I was rolling my eyes. Here's a bunch of NPR weenies whining about capitalism and unicorns and things like that. Longtime listener, Dr. Ernie, almost didn't press play on an episode we did a couple weeks back. We called it an alternative to Silicon Valley's unicorn bull But I have to confess, I loved this episode. It was possibly the most inspiring episode I have heard. The episode was about a new movement called Zebras Unite. It's for entrepreneurs who want to start businesses that do good, grow slowly, and manage to make a profit as opposed to so-called unicorn companies that aim to grow as fast as possible and make billions. Go back and listen for the details if you haven't already. But anyway, Dr. Ernie felt inspired, and he said a lot of nice things in his voice memo to us. You are becoming the bards of social capitalism. But Ernie also cautioned us not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not to completely write off the way business is done in Silicon Valley. And he speaks from experience. I live in Silicon Valley. I work for a unicorn. There's enormous good that's done. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And Dr. Ernie is right. When billions of dollars of venture capital get pumped into startups who then have businesses that distribute it to regular people. Into the hands of ordinary Americans who would have had no other choice. So Ernie, you inspired us. We decided to go looking for a venture capitalist, a VC, who is looking into the future and trying to predict as best they can that the companies they're investing in are actually building products or platforms that make money, yes, but also help make lives a bit healthier, saner for us all. And we think we found someone. This is the problem that we've got right now in terms of how do you build ethical companies. Katerina Fake. I've done a lot of investing. I now am a partner at YesVC, which is an early stage investment fund. Before she was an investor, Katerina founded Flickr. Later, she helped get Etsy off the ground. And now she's putting her money behind companies that she hopes will grow fast, but in ethical ways. How? By asking founders different kinds of questions, right from the start, questions that don't usually get asked in Silicon Valley. So don't go anywhere. We're going to have a quick break, and then I'll be back with Katerina. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine. Just 9% of all investors in all the venture capitalist firms in the U.S. right now are women. 
I am actually in the process of having lunch. Manoush. Katerina Fake is one of them. Why don't you say I'm an investor at YesVC and host of the podcast, Should This Exist? Yes, Katerina is now a venture capitalist and the podcast host, who isn't these days. But before that, she was an entrepreneur, co-founding one of the first photo sharing sites ever. So Flickr, my very first company, very community-oriented, very much about creativity, very collaborative. It was an online community and not social media. Way before Instagram, there was Flickr. Share stuff online, we do that partly because of Katarina. Fun fact, ironically, Katarina is also the person who made the acronym FOMO. As in, like, fear of missing out, she made it a thing. Yes, it was 2011, I believe, and I had heard this term being used in the sense of there's a party that I've been invited to, but I haven't, I decided that I was going to stay home or I wasn't invited to the party and I was experiencing FOMO. And what I realized was that social media, which I had been obviously you know, very much involved with the both creating as an entrepreneur and participating in was a machine for FOMO. And so I wrote a blog post about this, which became super viral. Before most of us realized that social media was eating our brains, Katerina helps coin a term for it. She sees things, cultural moments, movements before most of us know they're coming. And she's willing to bet on what she observes about human behavior. And so fast forward, and I wanted to kick off our interview by asking Katerina what she thinks is happening in our world and where she is putting her money right now. I think the what we often look for also, I think, is worth explaining, which is that we look for companies that are at the forefront of movements. Social movements, cultural movements, changes in society, changes in people's behavior. And one of the things that we're seeing right now is that people are constantly being marketed to. It's exhausting. And this is sort of the result of years of FOMO, right? (laughs) Years and years and years of FOMO. You're like, gosh, I don't want to see any more marketing. I don't want to see any influencers telling me what and what not to like. I'm over it, right? You know, we've all seen, I've been on Instagram, I've seen your acai bowl, you have seen my acai bowl, and we don't need to see anybody's (laughs) acai bowls anymore, right? We know they're delicious. We're over it. And so there's this kind of exhaustion and, and a very strong desire to protect yourself from all of this noise and all of this people trying to get your attention. You know, you go into the toothpaste section of your local grocery store, your Safeway or your D'Agostino or whatever, and you see 108 different varieties of toothpaste and you're just, it's just too much. Mm. Like stop it, right? So we invested in a company called Public Goods and Public Goods just basically has the most beautifully simple packaging. They're not trying to sell it to you and compete with a bunch of other brands on the Rite Aid or Walgreens shelf. It's just simple and beautiful, and you can put it in your home, and you don't feel like you're being barraged with messaging in your shower or by your sink, right? It's got one shampoo. It's got one toothpaste. It's got one kind of can of beans. It's got one 
offering of spaghetti. All of them are organic. All of them are very trustworthy, right? No animal testing, mm-hmm. all of that. And you don't have to think about it anymore. It's direct to consumer. You don't have to go to the grocery store. It just comes to your house in a box. And so this to me, when I first saw public goods, I felt very strongly that this was answering to a very strong cultural need. And the same way that Etsy came to represent the handmade movement, this is circa 2005, 2006, when I first made that investment, it was a very small company at the time, but it came to represent that entire movement. Mm. And you know, some of my other more successful investments, for example, Blue Bottle Coffee, it was kind of the anti-Starbucks and it was artisanal and it was handmade and it was kind of a very, very much at the beginning of the artisanal food movement, which I know has been endlessly mocked on television commercials with like, <laughs> you know, the bearded dude from Brooklyn with the beard and the artisanal pickle company. It's where I live. Right. Honestly, these are big societal trends and movements, and you can see them happening. And when we look at an investment, if there's already momentum behind a certain idea, it's so much easier. People are looking for it. They want it. Journalists are writing about it. There's already a big push to make these companies succeed. And so when we're out there, I think one of our particular strengths is that we're humanities folks. We don't have backgrounds in CS. We can all write code. And, you know, I was once upon a time able to write fairly decent code, though nobody would ever hire me to write code anymore. <laughs> but, you know, we're technologists, but we have this background in the humanities. I studied English literature. I studied Renaissance literature. Yuri was a sociologist. And we're kind mm-hmm. of very adept at spotting these kinds of movements and trends and things that are slightly more human, right? And I think that gives us a very strong differentiation in the Valley as a early stage investor. Mm. We look different from other investors out there and we're just playing to our particular strengths. So as someone who's in media, for me, one of the conundrums that I find as a journalist turned media entrepreneur is this question of whether scale is actually a good thing. Obviously, if someone's buying toothpaste, that's pretty benign. You want your toothpaste to succeed. You want that brand to scale. But when it comes to ideas and information and the way that we make money off of those things, we're definitely at this moment in society where I think a lot of people are saying, Ugh, maybe scale's not the point. Maybe we need to go back to being smaller and have deeper connections as opposed to broader connections. Yes. I think that we're realizing that the massive consolidation of power in five companies is actually not good for us. And that perhaps we should be engaging with each other on a more direct and smaller scale. And that this endless expansion has reached its limits and that perhaps it's time for us as like the systole and diastole of a heart, right? It expands and contracts. Mm. Because I do think that there's a lot to be said for things that are immediate, things that are small, spending time with actual friends rather than contacts and not suffering from this infinite and endless monkey mind and FOMO that the internet as it exists today creates in us. 
So does that change the mindset of VCs then? Are they willing to say like, all right, I might have to make a little less money on some of my investments if we pull it back a little bit, if we go smaller, deeper? I'm not sure that those two things are incompatible. I do think in general, there's a strong desire. And, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, so we have a very particular perspective on things that we're startup people. We're early stage investors. We're people that succeed if you reach, you know, a certain scale and don't need, if we were late stage investors, I think we'd have a very different perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But we're early stage. And so our job here in the Valley is to take on the behemoths, right? And the behemoths are not Walmart and IBM anymore. The behemoths are the startups of yesteryear. They still think of themselves and conceive of themselves as startups. They're not startups. And what we're looking for is startups, right? Like real kind of small two kids in a garage with a big idea startups. Do you think that this idea of tech and ethics is at a point where it's going to change the culture in terms of what gets invested and the standards that they are held to and the sort of types of things that do get funded? I do think that all of these new structures that are being created, the zebras, the B Corps, all of the work that IndyVC is doing for starting different funding methods, All of this is growing and enthusiasm is behind them. And you can see the starts of a movement behind them. And so, yeah, like in today's world and in the context as it exists and as everybody has understood it for the past 25, 30 years, no, it's a kidney that would be rejected if it were an implant, right? But (laughs) I think that I'm an enthusiast of disruption, And you kind of have to be if you're in my position and you do the job that I do. And maybe it is time for these old models to go out the door. An enthusiast for disruption. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. More with Katerina and Jen, my co-founder, will be here to weigh in too. Stick around. We're back. It's ZigZag. And as I mentioned earlier, Katerina has a new podcast. It's called Should This Exist? And it's based on the question that she asks founders when they pitch her to fund their company. This has been the celebrated path of entrepreneurs everywhere. Can it exist? Are we able to raise enough funding that it can exist? Is it something that it's possible to build? And instead ask the question... In addition to those questions, should this exist? Is this something that the world needs? Is this something that the world wants? Is this something that will strengthen humanity? You're hosting a podcast that's looking at the ethics of technology. What does it feel like to talk about all the faults and perils of tech with founders as an insider? Well, it's funny because everyone says, gosh, you know, why did you take on this subject and why this conversation now? But honestly, this is stuff that I've kind of been saying all along. During the rah-rah, technology is great, techno-utopian, fast company, we love you, puff piece, technology will save the world era, nobody was printing that story. It just was not a popular line of reasoning. And 
Jesus, I'm like a tech enthusiast through and through. And yet I could also see where the cracks were appearing, where bad decisions were being made. And the transformation of online community into social media was incredibly destructive. And those of us who really cared about this stuff, who had been participating in it and building it, and were building what we consider to be online communities, saw that when things were renamed social media, suddenly it was no longer about participation and connection. You were a passive consumer and you were sitting there and being fed the things that attracted your attention the most, that were the most sensational. And of course, those things are the most violent, the most sexual, the most divisive, right? All of this was very clear to those of us who worked there and we were raising the flag, 2007, 2009. Every time one of those changes came up, we all raised the flag, but it wasn't really something that people heeded at the time. Did they think you were like Cassandra's or like, what did they think? Were they like, all right, can you stop being so alarmist? Or like, what was the response when you were raising the flag? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the word Cassandra because I, I use this to describe this all the time, which is that everybody believed the boy who cried wolf, right? The boy who cried wolf was believed and believed and believed and believed until it turned out that he was actually lying, and then Cassandra, famously from Greek mythology, told the truth, told the truth, and told the truth, and was not listened to. And so what you end up with is a very tilted message that's getting out into the world. And the Cassandras are not listened to. It's not that people think you're a Cassandra. People ignore the Cassandra. And that's kind of the point. What is it about our industry that makes it that some people are listened to and some people aren't. What is it about the structure of technology startups that makes it so that people want to champion this one and not that one? Why is it that all of the attention is going to these 10 so-called unicorns and the rest of the companies are ignored? And why can't there, as in the real world, be a middle class of companies. And this is what I used to describe zebras as. What's wrong with that? Why must they die in order that 10 unicorns may live? And so what is it about all of the things that are inherent in the structure of what we're building, how we're building it, the industry as a whole, startups in general? Why is it the way that it is? And shouldn't it change? Is there a one word answer to that? Could it be testosterone? <laughs> you know, it very well may be. I think that part of the reason that we started Yes VC was that I had been, as you can imagine, heavily recruited up and down Sand Hill Road at some of the bigger Noosh jumping in here. Sand Hill Road is the famous avenue where all the big VC firms have their headquarters out in Silicon Valley. I was going to be the first woman at those firms, and that idea just didn't appeal to me. It seemed as if... No? It, it seemed as if the better thing to do would be to start a firm from scratch that mm. just had women in it from the very beginning. And one of the great things about how venture capital has actually changed and investing has actually changed is that there's now this category of investment, which is where I thrive, and the things about which I care most, which is early stage investing, which is now 
a larger category than it ever had been before, and therefore welcomes new players and people like me who don't look like other VCs. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like a huge opportunity and that the world was changing. And frankly, that we looked more like the future than the past. I am really fascinated, and I maybe that's because I'm not out in the Valley, but I don't hear a ton about this, this idea of rethinking design to build ethics back into the tech tools that we use. And obviously, you think about that a lot. You described a company you're investing in based on the look of the labels. Are you thinking about, like, is that perhaps the next chapter, is thinking about how we design for this new acknowledgement that constant connectivity is not serving us? Constant connectivity has never served us. (laughs) Um, And yes, I do think that we need to do things like withdraw. And I do think that the design of the products very much, I was talking earlier about the difference between conceiving of your product as online community versus these people are passive consumers that I can not only sell toothpaste to, but I can also sell them ideology to the highest bidder, that's a design decision. That is a product design decision. You have decided to make it possible for anybody who can pay to get to the top of somebody's attention can do it. And that's a design decision, right? That's how you're designing your product. And that comes from conceiving of it as social media and not as online community, which if you think of things as online community, you make a completely different set of assumptions about what you're building, about who you're building for, about what they need, about what your business model is. Mm. And people will pay for access or you can buy a family plan or you can pay for it in a different way other than by people buying and selling your attention and frankly, who you are. Yeah. But as a media person, I worry that people are going to get subscription fatigue. I have so many subscriptions to so many things, and I want to support all the good journalism out there and the media being made. But at some point, aren't we just headed back to consolidation in some way? We saw Apple just released its new Apple News thing, bundling of news sources for, I don't know, whatever it is, 10 bucks a month. I worry that we're asking too much of people. But isn't that part of the solution, just saying no to infinity, infinite media, (laughs) right? I mean, honestly, like the barriers to entry are good. I think that you're just looking at it from the perspective of FOMO, (laughs) right? right? Like we shouldn't be embracing our limitations. We should be picking the five news sources that we want to subscribe to, right? Isn't that the solution and not the problem? Yeah. Maybe it is. It's hard. It's hard to ask people to choose. But I think (laughs) we've lost that muscle in some ways in society. Yes. And I think that it's a good muscle to have that you can't be instantly gratified perpetually. The pendulum is swinging back. And we've been way too promiscuous with friending too many people. And we just really want to talk to the people that we want to see all the time and frankly constrain ourselves. Mm. It's a discipline. A lot of the conversation that we've been having has been about 95% of everything is noise, is crap, is not worth paying attention to, is not necessary to the path that you're on 
And if you have a very clear idea of your goals and who it is you want to be and what it is you want to become and the things that you care about and want to get behind and support, you do have to be fairly strict with yourself and eliminate that 95% so you can get to the 5% that will carry you forward. Totally. I'm debating whether to ask you. I need advice. I don't know if you know the whole saga, which is that my executive producer and I left our stable public radio jobs to start our own little media company. And we initially have been really resistant to the idea of taking investment at all because we really associated it with extreme pressure to produce results and monetary results very, very quickly. And as people who do a lot of reporting on creativity and the time it takes to really build something that has long-lasting value, we also have children, frankly, and we just felt like this was going to put us onto a path that was not sustainable. Do you think that that was simplistic? Do you think that there are, like, now we're at the point, though, where we're like, how are we going to, like, do the things to make the big idea that we have without a little injection of cash. We get it now. Like, we're journalists. We didn't know what we were talking about, but now we get it. Right. I don't know. I think that you are, it's well thought through. I think that you have to know what you value and what's important to you and the rate at which you want to grow and the kind of business that you want to build. And venture capital is probably not the way to do that. That is not to say that you can't take on other investors and other kinds of investment that is not so tied to this go big or go home mentality, mm. but has a different expectation and assumption. And you know, this is honestly what the zebra movement is about. And a lot of these alternatives that are coming around these days, there's alternative funding models. And I think that you really need to think it through and pick the right path for yourselves and for your company. Yeah. There's not only one way. And I think that that's one of the issues. That's one of the problems these days is that it seems as if there's only one way to build and grow and fund a company, but there's actually many, many, many alternatives. Katarina, thank you so much. Thank you for your advice, for your ideas, and for being part of this new conversation. Thank you, too. Take care. Okay, so that was my conversation with Katarina. And now I'm in the studio, and I am joined by my co-founder, Jen Poyant. Hello. Hello. Co-founder of Stable Genius Productions, executive producer of this show, co-host. I don't know. What do you call yourself these days? I don't know. Co-founder. Usually co-founder, which... Co-badass! Sounds very vague, but I know. it covers a lot of bases. <laughs> what do you think, Jen? Katarina is not an impact investor. Like, she doesn't specifically fund companies that are going to solve problems like hunger mm -hmm. or climate change. Mm -hmm. But she has people's... And this is what, I guess, made me gravitate to her. She has people's psyches in mind when she chooses which companies she thinks should get a bigger shot. Mm -hmm. Do you do you jive with that? I totally jive with it. I loved this interview. Which surprised me. Why? Well, I don't know. I guess, like, it... Just tell me why you liked it. It's funny, because we started talking about how you were going to position the episode. I think I might have said, I think it's an answer or a continuation of the Zebra episode. And you were like, yes! And then you mentioned... 
Dr. Ernie. Dr. Ernie from like, the top. Yes, exactly. Do that. It really furthered that conversation that we started with the Zebras episode and in a way that I didn't feel like was redundant. And I feel like we're still exploring, particularly our company. I mean, we're just obsessed. We're in a very difficult period right now with our business where we have taken on and launched this second show, Note to Self, that we'd brought back from WNYC. That does mean growth for the business, but it's relatively small growth, right? We have such big ambitions for this company, but it's hard to realize them or to get to that next phase of growth that we want to get to, to make the business plan to like go out and find the investors that would be interested in the type of business that we're we're trying to build. And in some way, I feel like these conversations, both the zebra conversation and the, the conversation with Katerina, it's like us fielding. Ugh, trying to figure it out. Yeah. And and like so many other people are in this particular phase. If you're not going straight for the big VC money and you want to build in accordance with your own values and with the values that you hope your quote unquote customers or consumers also have in mind, that's a trickier proposition. And that's what she's talking about throughout the episode, really. she's She goes back over and over again to values. Not to nerd out, but like I am not entirely sure that the things that Silicon Valley is starting to talk about right now, like we need empathy and mm-hmm. intimacy and all of those things. Mm-hmm. What if you can't scale those? Well, what yeah. if they're not scalable? What if you can't go big on those? I mean, granted, we talked about like a product company that Katerina is, is uh-huh. funding. And and sure, you can scale it that way because it's a, like stuff you buy. Exactly. So it's funny that you say that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt no, you. But go. as we were listening to that clip. Listeners, her, her, she started like shaking in her chair when I was talking just then. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote down this note and I, wrote, I was thinking about this on the train too. We're in a particularly weird kind of crossroad between product consumerism. Yeah. Right? The country is as well. Like, She mentioned, for example, Walmart as an example. Back then, they were the big behemoth, right? That was what consumerism was represented by. But now we're in this weird place where e-commerce and product consumerism and then also media consumerism Mm. and media consumption are all colliding. Mm -hmm. And it's it's forcing us to think about our value systems in very different ways than it did when, when the big behemoths were... It's just how you did it. You went to Walmart, you bought your stuff. Right. It's so different now. It's all kind of at the nexus of having our identities be online. Yep. Like through consumerism, through the influencers. That's why I found her perspective so fascinating. And really, it really does kind of actually go back to the mirror of social media. Now, you're not only you see people's acai bowls, you also get Instagram ads that are fed to you from marketers that are right. you know it it all comes back to that data privacy stuff that you're that you're so obsessed with and yeah. it's it's still something that like people kind of know and they kind of like get it but they also don't really care cuz like I don't know. I got a really cool bikini Instagram ad the other day that I was like, well, that's actually Did you order it? Oh, yeah. You did? Yes. Instagram ads work on you. They really do. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I'm even on Instagram, you know, because I know I too know. much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. Like, I don't need another biki- – like, I don't – we don't need all this stuff. But we do need to figure out what the five n- news sites are that will help us live life in accordance with our values. I really agree with that. Yeah. You know? And so to get back to our business, 
we're trying to build a company that will help people get there. It's a small company right now, but I think one of the big ideas is to help people navigate those the complexities of exactly that crossroads we're at. And she seemed to think you can scale it to a middle class company. I know. I thought I that was an interesting that. I was term. Like, yes, I want to be a middle class company. <laughs> First of all, like what's a middle class company in that context, right? Like yeah. if we're not a unicorn, it's probably zebra. She basically said, Yeah, that's a zebra. I'm like, good. So we could build like a twenty million dollar company that like pushes just pushes the buttons in the right way, in the good way, of the people that respect our value system. But I think what I'm creating movement. What I'm saying is like think that the in has to be smaller. I don't think it works when you try to go big. Yes, but again, I don't know. But yes, but these are all relative terms, though. Right. How big? Yeah. How small? Right. I went for a long walk with a very dear friend of mine who's turning 40 this year. And, you know, it's just such a cliche, but the midlife crisis is real. And um, he's thinking about, like, changing it up professionally. Mm -hmm. And it's so weird, this idea of work and identity. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like... I think he's running the conversations in his mind Mm -hmm. of what he'll tell people. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, it seems strange to not tell people I'm setting my sights on something bigger or I'm going to try, you know, going to scale it up. Mm -hmm. Like that even for people who aren't in tech or media or whatever, Mm -hmm. just the the culture right now is to be like, I'm going to go kill it somewhere or I'm going to go like get some – I don't know, funding and do something. You gotta you know, be the bad ass, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And like he might not. <laughs> he he might have to start like all an, over. All over again. I mean, I know people that have done that, like have gone to medical school at at 40 yep. or whatever. My brother in law. Right. Yep. Your brother in law did that. Yeah. But the goal was to become a doctor. What if that's not the goal? What if the goal is to like do something not as exciting, and maybe if they're if, okay I mean, with that. if it that, makes them happy, who right, cares? Right, exactly. But it's, I think there's a transition that has to happen where he's like, this is, I'm okay with this being the next step. Sure. But what? I just think it's really interesting that people who are not talking about tech, they're not talking about business, and yet they this ethos, this feeling of go big or go home, do something that's Instagram worthy, even if you're not on Instagram, has seeped into all the culture. Sure. At least here in the United States. I'd be curious to hear from our listeners who don't live in the United States if it's like that too. But you're talking about that movement, right? That's what Katerina Fake was talking about. It's like a small movement. How do you even begin to make a movement that brings attention to those issues and supports businesses that are trying to do the right thing? You know, and do we participate in that? How do we build companies like that? How do people find and support companies like that? And it is if you can do that collectively, does that create even the tiniest bit of resistance against the five big companies that she mentioned? Well, just to harken back to seasons one and two of ZigZag, we got several thousand people to try out crypto to see if that could, if blockchain could solve any of these problems. It hasn't worked yet, but I think like, it's it's part of the little movement, right? It's right. like, it's all the people trying out the weirdo things. Like, this is how it happens. Right. It's just slow. It's really you gotta slow. you got to be patient. I know. I'm not good at that. Going back to our business, I don't think we're going through that, too. We hear about these big ideas about alternative investment models. I'm like, where are these investors? I know. And, you know, we set a timeline for us to meet this summer together, to, like, get our business plan together, the next phase. 
So many phases. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we're like trying to make shows. So many shows. A lot of shows. Dude. Oh, I know. But it's good. I mean, these are freaking good problems. Yeah, to have. for sure. Should we wrap this? Oh, I have some statistics for you that I compiled. They're really sad, so maybe I shouldn't read this to you. Female CEOs get about 3% of VC globally money. Oh, that's gone up a percentage in the past few years then, You know, huh? I think they just rounded it up. I think it was 2.6%. <laughs> Black women CEOs get 0.2%. Oh, this one killed me. Gender diverse teams, like with just one woman on a founding team yeah. that is otherwise all male. They get just 17% of VC dollars. It's like a penalty if you have a woman. Wait. Like, you get a little bonus if you have a couple male co-founders. But you don't really get out of the water. Meanwhile, though, there are all these studies that show that the returns are higher if you have a woman as one of the founders. Sure. So whatevs. Hey. Oh. Positive note, we <laughs> is really are <laughs> um, planning something very special for the episode that is coming out June 6th. I hope we can this pull ver- it off. This very much dovetails with uh, what we just talked about, actually. It does. It is actually, you know what? It is actually, I have said to you, I think this thing that we're going to be talking about on June 6th marks a shift. For us? For, n- no, it's not all about us. Sorry, you're right. Just like the, the, the movement that mm-hmm. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think... I think that that's what we're going to talk. It, I'm psyched about it. Okay, explain it, though. No, I'm not going to, because what if it doesn't happen? Fair enough. Right? You don't want to give them a little, a little bit more of a hint than that? Okay. It's about finding a way to rate our products that we use every single day, whether they actually do good by us, the customers. Like, sure, your dishwasher works, as you want to buy the best dishwasher, you want it to be, you know, energy efficient, mm-hmm. all those things. But is it collecting? What kind of data is it collecting? How does it work? Where does the data go? All of those things. Because mm-hmm. that's the world we live in now where everything is going to be collecting data about us all the time. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be pretty proactive about understanding, like, why and how it serves us and if it doesn't. And so this is about finding a way to do that. Cool. You look so excited. I'm You're so such excited. a nerd. I'm such a nerd. All right. Did we want to ask, what's our question for listeners? I think it's maybe, she said at one point, there's so much crap out there. She was like, 95% oh. of all things are crap, noise. So you have to be strict with yourself. You have to have discipline to get to the 5% that you want to get to. Mm. I just want to know if people, when they're consuming, whether it's consuming stuff or consuming information, information whether they're even trying to be strict with themselves at all. Like, if that's, that's a such question. a new idea. But I think it's really, I think to me, there's all there's all sorts of different ways that I think people are learning to have more discipline and grow. It's like minimalism s- movement, too, Exactly. Right? But mm-hmm. there's, like, all these self-help movements and self-growth movements. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is a new one, basically. We're talking about starting, like, a new self-help mm-hmm. or self-growth movement mm-hmm. that's based on being disciplined about how you choose to consume, whether it is products or information. Quality over quantity. Right. I just want to know if people are even thinking about it, honestly. Well, they are because they are listening to this. True, self-selected group. Mm. But but I like the question anyway. I still think Let's a lot throw of people it out aren't. There. Okay. Or how much? Like, how much do you care yeah. or try? That's good. Record us a voice memo. We would love to hear from you about 
how much you think people, either you, yourself, or people around you, are thinking about minimizing how much they're taking in, whether it's consumption or information or news or media or whatever, send that voice memo or message to, but we would love to hear your lovely voices, uh, send it to zigzag at stable G, that's S-T-A-B-L-E-G dot com. Also, in an attempt to curate and streamline the information that I compulsively take in. (laughs) I write a newsletter every two weeks. It goes out on a Thursday morning. It is free. It's got links to the the best stuff I think that's happening online, a special note with some reflections on this stuff. Sign up on our website as well, stableg.com. You want to say goodbye? Bye. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wordle is our production coordinator. Many thanks to Anya Zhezik, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening. All right, last question I've got for you, which is I am working to compile a list of tech tools or platforms or apps. It can be anything that people can feel good about using, that there are ethics built into the design of it. Uh, It could be anything. It could be the DuckDuckGo. It could be the Pocket app, which is one of my personal favorites. Is there something that you use that you would recommend? I think that one of the most underutilized tools in our modern world, you're going to love this, Manoush. Let's hear it. Okay. It's the off switch 